Welcome to The Rural Rockstar, a podcast dedicated to empowering rural women with the tools and inspiration to transform their lives and businesses from the inside out. I share my journey of Survive to Thrive in life and business, and I show what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I also interview other rockstar women from around the world to inspire you to do it too. My mission is to empower the next generation of rural changemakers to show up and be the leaders we need. I'm Katrina, your rockstar host. Let's rock. Hello and welcome back to The Rural Rockstar. I'm your host, Katrina Myers, and today I'm joined by Samantha Nolan-Smith. Hello, Sam. Hello, Katrina. Thank you so much for being with me today. It is just lovely to have you on. So, so Samantha is one of my sort of coaches and mentors, and I'm doing her School of Visibility program. And so not so much on today as a rural rock star, but more someone who can empower women to become a rural rock star is, is my thinking behind having you on. And I have loved working with Sam over the last, I think I've been sort of over six months now with the School of Visibility. And I think I really wanted to talk to you today because I think the stuff that you have to offer, the stuff, the work that you do in the world is just so incredible and so important for women. And being able to kind of, first of all, have an awareness that there is are these visibility blocks for women and what we're all dealing with as women and you know, kind of peeling back the layers of uncovering the complexities of all this work is so, so important. And then figuring out, well, how do we deal with that? What can we do about it? And the work that you do is beautiful and you have such a beautiful way of taking these big complex issues and not coming from a place of like victim and blame or any of that. It's really like sort of let's explore and uncover what's going on and figure out how we can work with that. And I was sort of attracted to Sam's work when I was dealing with some, you know, complex issues that I was experiencing in my community when I was kind of trying to speak up in in the water space. And, you know, I was really definitely experiencing these visibility challenges and the challenges of speaking up and your work just resonated with me so much and I was so drawn to, you know, the concepts of trying to bridge the different worlds that you exist in and how to speak up as a woman and, you know, the feminism and all this stuff. So. And I've loved being involved with the program. And so I really wanted to chat with you today about the work that you do in the world and then, you know, pull apart some some of the feminism stuff and and some of the blocks that exist and then maybe some tips and some tools for people and how they can work with some of the blocks that they might have once they, if they see, oh, actually that is something that I'm experiencing. So if you could start by telling us what sort of led you to the work that you do and, and led you to creating the School of Visibility and Women Speaking Up. Mm. Well, thank you for having me and what a lovely introduction. I really loved that. Thank you so much. Uh, so the School of Visibility really came about, I was already working online, had been working online for a number of years after I had a had a career in the public sector and in um, the law and got quite sick with chronic fatigue for about four years and just found that I could not hold down a regular job after that. And this was around 2008. And so I moved online because I needed something that I could do which would accommodate where I was physically, which was basically maybe I could sit and work for about an hour on my laptop and then I would need to sleep for an hour or two and then I could work again, then I could sleep. And at that time, blogging was just sort of starting to come into its own. There were still loads of people when I said, I think I'm going to try and do something online around blogging. There were loads of people who were like, what's a blog? What does that mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, so the world's moved a lot in that, you know, in that period. But I thought, well, I've, I've got to try. It was that or I was living in the UK at the time and I thought, and I started to look into maybe disability pension. And it was like, I'm either going to have to do that or I'm going to have to find a way to work differently. And so I went online. I started uh, working with women online around well-being. And I'd done so much healing work myself to get myself out of this quite severe adrenal breakdown that I was in. And so I started sharing about that and what I had done. And I had trained in a couple of different healing modalities. and 
after a number of years of doing that, women started saying to me, how are you building a business online? Tell me about this and tell me how I could do it. But I don't want to do it like lots of the men do it. I don't want to be really pushy. I don't want to be like doing bro marketing. I'm not interested in feeling like I um, am like the sleazy car salesman, et cetera, et cetera. And so I started teaching women about that. And what I discovered was the more that they started building something that really mattered to them and that felt really personal, like an expression of who they are and what they're really here to share with the world, the more visibility blocks came up. So they would know all the things, like they would know how to set up a business. They would know, yes, I've got to get a website. I've got to get a social media account. They knew all the things. And when I'd say, what's going on? They'd say, I just, I'm really frightened about being seen. And sometimes it was frightened about being seen by lots of people and strangers. And sometimes it was, I don't want my community to see me. I don't want, or I don't want these particular people to see me. I don't want my family to see me. And so that really shifted me and the focus of the business. This was about 2015 into, oh, there's a huge thing around women and visibility. And so I decided to start to dig into building a body of work around what are these things, visibility blocks, which is basically a term I kind of just made up because uh, <laughs> I knew about internal blocks, but I hadn't been hearing anybody speak about visibility blocks. And so I started to dig into that. I started to look into why would women particularly suffer from either imposter syndrome or fear of having their voice heard or fear of being seen. And that the more that I dug into that and complemented that with my background in social justice, my understanding of feminist theory, I realized oh, this is a huge issue and it's and it's something that absolutely we have to be talking about all the time and women need the tools to overcome these things. So that's how I create, that was the start of the School of Visibility. Mm. So, so important. And it's obviously really resonated with a lot of people as well. And, and I, I love that you coined the term visibility blocks because it's so appropriate. Like I, I just, it's so, it just nails it. Like, and that's exactly what I have experienced. And, and um, it, it explains it very well. So can you tell us a little bit about them? Well, why do women have these extra blocks? I mean, you know, we, we sort of know some of the superficial stuff. I think most people would have some awareness of that it's, you know, historically there's been, you know, all these things that have happened. But can you tell us a little bit more about why women, as opposed to men, have these blocks around getting visible? Absolutely. So let me just be clear for everybody. So when I talk about visibility blocks, what I'm talking about are the inner fears around either being heard or being seen. So a a block might look like I want to speak on radio, I want to speak on podcasts, I want to create my own podcast, but I hate my own voice and so I'm not going to do it. I'm just, I do not, I cannot overcome that. Or it might be, I really want to be on video or I'm thinking about getting some photos done and I just don't want people to see my body. I do not want, I, you know, I'm constantly judging it. I feel ashamed of it. I do not want to put myself out there. So these are the kinds of things that when you're then trying to progress your career, whether it's, whether it is what I pray, the people that I primarily work with, which is women building business online, or if it's in any any industry at all, and you're working through the career ladder of that industry, these fears, these inner blocks, stop you from putting yourself forward. So they might stop you from putting your hand up for a promotion or for a really important project at work or from sh- sharing an opinion in a meeting. Uh, whatever it is, could be in a community meeting, could be could be any any kind of environment. So that's what a block is. And then why particularly these affect women? And I I want to say up front, of course, men have some visibility blocks, mm-hmm. but they're very the experience is very gendered, and so their predominance is of visibility blocks amongst the entirety of the female population. And the reason for that is that we live in societies which. Uh, I'll, I'm going to use the term patriarchal, where patriarchal societies, where we we have all inherited a system where what we're doing is we've been taught consciously and unconsciously to prioritise a certain group of people in society. Mm-hmm. And those people are ably-bodied, straight white men. 
And so that's the, if you think about it as a hierarchy, they're the tip of the hierarchy. They're the ones who we deem to be most important. And you can see that because you see who our prime minister is and who the cabinet is and you see all the fights we have around actually trying to get more women and much more diversity of all sorts, race and um, and in terms of physical ability and all sorts of things into those places of leadership. You look at something like the uh, ASX 200 and you see that nearly every board is filled to the brim with white men. And there are very few other individuals who actually, and particularly women, who who get into those into those positions. And so and so and so it goes. We have a really interesting statistic, for example, around uh, Hollywood movies, where when I, if you, if I, before I knew this statistic, I would have thought, oh, roughly the same amount of women and men get roughly the same amount of you know airtime in movies. I certainly see a lot of women on movies, and but when the analysis has been done of the speaking parts in a movie, women actually only get a third of the speaking parts. Men get two thirds of the speaking parts. And lots of the narratives, the stories told in movies are focused around men. And the women will often be the support role or she's there, she's she's in the background, but she doesn't have any kind of agency and doesn't have, isn't prioritised or or her story and her experience is not told. So we're seeing a bit of a resurgence around that at the moment where we're seeing that um, more stories around women were going back to the history books and going, oh, my goodness, the history books only tell us one perspective and they only tell us about one gender. They only tell us about one colour of people. What? Let's just bring forth all of the other stories now so that's why you'll see more and more books about what amazing women have done in the world but what that scenario what that environment has done is that it's created a whole set of messages not all of which are conscious that's that have effectively said your voice your experience your perspective is just not that valuable to us as a collective as a society your perspective doesn't matter as much as the ones you see in the films, as the people that you see in the um, in the lodge, as the people that you see running the, you know, the captains of industry. Their perspective matters most and everybody else's perspective comes after that. And so what when you're growing up in an environment where that is the predominant messaging from society, even if your parents or your community has told you something different, the minute that you turn on the television, open a magazine, uh, listen to something on the radio, the messaging comes through, you start to internalise it, the message, oh, I, uh, my perspective isn't so important. But on top of that, we have the conditioning of little girls and little boys, and it's extremely different. It's very gendered and in so many unconscious ways. And what effectively we're saying to little boys is go for it, do whatever you want. You, you know, if you, if you, when we say boys will be boys, what we're effectively saying is they've got free license to behave as they wish. And we're okay with that because we want them to be free. We want them to express themselves. We want them to, you know, and we give you a free pass. But we don't have a saying girls will be girls. We just don't have. What we say is be polite, be nice, be kind, be quiet, fit in, be a good student. And so girls learn very, very quickly that that is how they will be valued in a society. And that starts to, you start to see it in the teenagers, it really tips over from girls being super, super confident in the early years in mm-hmm. primary school. And all of a sudden they start to dip into this. And they have this terrible dip off of uh, self, um, of feeling confident in themselves. And it's it's connected to the way that we're conditioned. And then that carries through. And then, the, and then once we hit, uh, once we hit the workplace, that has well and truly been entrenched, these messages around, look, we value your opinion in the workplace, but don't be too bossy, don't be too pushy, don't, we don't want you to take up too much of the meeting space. You can share your opinion, but, you know, we all know who's playing the real game here and who's really important in the room. So that's kind of a quick and sort of quick and dirty overview of why 
women in particular suffer from visibility blocks? Mm. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention there going off what you said and then I'd like to kind of use my experience to, to chat with you more about that. But one thing I saw that in relation to movies was that even when there's mothers portrayed in movies, they're usually the evil stepmother, you know, and I thought <laughs> oh, it's just another way that we're... <laughs> You know, the gender issue comes into it. They're never like the beautiful mother who saves the day. It's the dad that always saves the day and the evil stepmother's the evil one, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then something I heard you mention in another podcast was these days, even when we now say, well, the struggle now is that we may be starting to say more to women, go for it, you can be anything you want, but then underneath that is all these visibility blocks and the things that are holding us back, which the men and the boys just don't have as significantly as what we do. There's that. So what we do is we do teach. I was certainly taught by my father uh, who uh, to go for it, to do anything you yeah. want. And, of course, he was coming from the perspective of a man who had a wife who stayed at home full time yes. taking care of the three children. Mm-hmm. And so when he said go for it, he then did not in any way account for the fact that then if I wanted to have children, there was no structural support in place to enable me to continue my career without taking time out of the workplace, suddenly juggling children and career. And he he just had no concept of that because he'd never done it. He just, the children were born. He'd continued to go to work. He'd come home. Everything was taken care of. They were fed. They were healthy. The homework was done. And then, you know, and so it was really easy for him to say that. And I appreciate him saying that, obviously. I appreciate him giving me that encouragement, but it was very clear to me that he had no notion of what it would be to be a woman trying to juggle a career and juggle a household at the same time. And it's just this generation really because we're the first generation that really has come off the back of the second wave of feminism and really the majority of women now work. There's there's nowhere near the numbers of women staying at home full time that there were in the, you know in the 20th century and so this is why all of these issues are suddenly coming up around hang on society is not set up mm. for for people to care for children and have full time careers it's just not we don't have that in place yet so we have all of that happening all of the structural problems at the same time as we have all of this conditioning. And so then even to speak up about this feels like, oh, are we causing problems? Oh, are people going to listen to us? Oh, does this, you know, will we will we be seen to be too pushy? All of these kind of internalised things, messaging, then exacerbates the problem. And women who keep speaking up about this are on some level deemed to be a bit troublesome, a bit. Absolutely. causing a few problems for us yeah the troublemakers and just a bit annoying really um excuse me so that sort of leads me into sort of my experience locally in the community and some of the things that I sort of felt internally and the struggles that I had so you know Samantha you know but and most of my audience knows as well that we have you know in in our community we have faced the 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 sort of impacts of Murray Darling Basin plant and in general the community basically wanted to stop the plan because it meant that we had less water and there was lots of issues associated with that. But what I sort of tried to do was come out and say, well, hang on a minute, actually we do need a plan long-term. This is the best thing for the environment. We just need to learn how to adapt to it and, you know, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. We can, you know, we can make this work. And I got on this committee and I started to sort of speak up a little bit and you know, I, I came under a lot, quite a lot of criticism and it was, it, you know, it was in reflection, it was very interesting to see the difference of how I was treated as opposed to how a man would have been treated. But certainly, I, and I just, another thing I heard you talk about on, on a podcast recently was that women have this need to, the words you said were an excessive consideration of what other people think and that worry of how other people are going to interpret what you say. So I was sort of overly conscious of like, well, who am I going to offend by saying this? Am I going to upset my friends and neighbours? And, you know, I don't want to make things worse for all the farmers. And am I making them more more stressed? And am I going to lead to them being more depressed? And no, I really, I should hold back on what I'm going to say. Even though I knew that everything I was wanting to express was coming from this total place of love and good intention and I only wanted what was best for my community, 
I was really just overthinking everything and really held myself back from being able to say what I really wanted to say. And it felt so, you know, con- conflicting. And I was thinking, well, there's other leaders out there in the water space who are men who I'm sure they don't think about any of this sort of stuff. Like they're not having these worries, you know, and I was trying to research and learn, well, how can I have these conversations better and how can I say this better and how could I do this? And so this is obviously a very common thing for women, right? So common. You know, <laughs> it happens It happens every day, everywhere. And I always think the perfect example of the difference between what a woman does in order to speak up publicly and what a man does is was the 2016 election between Hillary Clinton and mm. Donald Trump, where Hillary Clinton was so prepared, mm. she had 600 pages of policy document written, ready to go if she had won the presidency. She was so prepared. She knew every topic inside and out, back to front, or every single way because she knew she was going to be, she knew that she was going to be held to a different standard than than the man. So there was there was one person who knew knew that was coming and so did everything she could to be ready for it. On the other hand, we had Donald Trump who out and out said all the time, I don't prepare, that's ridiculous. Why would I need to prepare for anything? Like, why would I need to prepare for the job of presidency of the United States? You know, and this is like such a stark example of what's going on every single day in workplaces, in communities, everywhere, where women are over-preparing almost and because not only do they know that their voices are going to be less well-received, they know that they're going to get more criticism, they're going to get more questions put to them, and so they're going to have to be able to speak up. Plus they've got all the internal fears of am I an imposter? Is this, should I? Should I, am I even entitled to say anything in this space? I mean, it's only 100 years where we literally had to fight to be entitled to have a voice in parliament. This was an issue that it was considered that women should not have a voice, that they didn't, weren't entitled to have a voice. They weren't intelligent enough to have a voice. They didn't have enough interest in the public domain to provide any kind of intelligent contribution to that debate. So that's not, that's not very long in the in the spectrum of things and then on the other hand we have the boys will be boys the consequence of boys will be boys is well I can say whatever I want of course I can of course my opinion matters even when I know nothing about a topic my perspective is important (laughs) and uh, and, you know you hear sometimes people say oh for the confidence of an average white man like that's is what happens when you grow up in a society which says your opinion is always important in in every single circumstance. And the reality is that there are environments where it would do well for a man to sit back and learn to listen and it would do well for a woman to step forward and learn how to articulate herself or get the confidence to articulate her voice. Mm. And this isn't about, like, uh, women taking over the world and men, you know, having no longer having any role in society. Of course that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about bringing some balance to the, dis- the, the discourse, public discourse, but also in homes, bringing balance to the sense of value that we have for everybody's perspective and really learning to approach our relationships i always think of it as as circular when we sit in circle with one another everybody can see everybody everybody is equally valuable everybody can speak up and everybody can listen to everybody else and when we start to bring that perspective of if we are all in circle together as a community as a company wherever whatever environment we're in as a political uh, entity then it becomes very, very obvious very fast if one person's dominating the whole thing because everybody else in the circle is looking at each other like, mm. really, you think you're the only one who has a perspective here. But if we're all in circle, everybody's perspective matters. Everybody's in contribution is valuable. And this is a way of interacting which has not been a part of Western culture Mm. for a very long time let's say for a very long time this is not how we've interacted 
Mm. That, there's so many times where I've thought how cool would it be within the Murray-Darling Basin to have these circle sort of situations where you get, because, you know, there's plenty of things that, that, that are going wrong at the high level, well, not the high level, but the government level as well and at that political level. Imagine if you could sit in circle and discuss these things and the progress that you would make would, I think, would be amazing. So I've certainly thought about that myself. And I think, you know, if we could do everything like that, it would solve a lot of the world's problems. But just to talk a little bit further about that in relation to societal norms, because something that I often think about, this is, and again, where I'm, you know, I try not, I don't want to be a troublemaker, so I'm overthinking it. But when we look at things that happen in a community or in society, and the roles that women play in society, could you talk a little bit to us about, I always find it hard to articulate, but what I see is that women in these, you know, w- women doing more of the volunteering, women doing all of the pickups and drop-offs, women doing the cake stalls, women doing the majority of volunteering at the footy club, um, you know, the unpaid roles are still done by women. So how is that contributing and what's the connection of that where we're putting women in this sort of place still? How does that contribute to the problem? Because I can see you know, like on a superficial level, I'm sure it is, but I can never really articulate why very well. So could you talk to that a bit for us? Yeah, I think there's a few things to that. One of them is that in the environment that I described, the patriarchal environment, what we've said to women is your value is in your contribution and your relationships. So your value isn't as an individual making something of yourself. That's a man's value. That's what we call the breadwinner. A woman's value is in how she keeps everybody together in the home, how she ensures that the community is is continuing to thrive and survive. And by the way, we only attribute economics to the one who's raising himself up. We don't actually see economics as having anything to do with the home, which is why we then don't pay the people who happen to stay at home and look after the children, 99% of which whom are women, Mm -hmm. we don't pay you for that because you don't need to do that. The whole system is built on a heteronormative relationship where you have a, a woman and a man in a heterosexual relationship. The man goes off to work and earns the money and the woman stays home and looks after the children. And even though that is not most people's lifestyle today, the economic system is still wrapped around that. So, And we haven't broken that down sufficiently yet. And so what that has done is it's left women doing all the volunteer jobs, doing all of the jobs where uh, which people who have a full-time job do not have time for and keeping everything going. And we keep saying, this is what makes you special. This is, you're so valuable. You're so important. You're amazing. Thank you for doing this. (laughs) You're incredible. And, oh, but we're not going to pay you for it. No. But, but thank you. This is invaluable to our community, but, oh, not, not valuable enough to actually give, put money to it. And, in fact, the, the comment is, oh, surely, like, how, why would you want money for that? Like, you do that out of love. You do that yeah. out of, you know, we live in a capitalist society. We can, we're not, like, let's not pretend that we don't live in a capitalist society. The capitalist society says we value what we value, we pay for. Yes. And then, so this is what capitalism teaches us, and then we turn around and say, you're incredibly valuable, but we're not going to pay you for your stuff. Mm-hmm. What does that say in a capitalist society? We don't actually value you. Mm-hmm. We like that you're there, you're holding the whole system up, but we don't want to pay you for that. Mm. So women then fall into this, what I'm going to call a trap, of, okay, well, I'm valued and I'm seen as important if I do all of these things, mm. this is how I'm a really good mum. If I contribute to the PNC and I'm up at the canteen or wh- wherever it is, and I'm participating in all of that, people tell me, you know, that's where I get seen as contributing and valuing. But then, if the woman's like, "But hang on, hang on, I haven't actually done anything for me right lately at all," and starting to feel a little bit drained by everybody else's demands on her. Then she feels selfish about then saying, hang on, I need some time for myself or actually maybe I want to go out and be a breadwinner too. Maybe I want to pursue some kind of career that's just about something that I'm really passionate about. 
that goes wildly against what I've just spoken about, about the messaging around, you know, you do this. And it's as simple as things like uh, when somebody's cooking the dinner, the expectation that the little girl might come and help or set the table mm. or do all of this and the boys are off running around in the backyard. That's fine, apparently. Mm. The, girls, the girls are the ones. So there's all this conditioning from very, very young age that tells the girl, here's how we value you. And it's all about uh, being of service to other people. Mm. And then obviously then what happens is we end up in situations where women do not physically have any time left Mm. to then really contribute in the way that the workforce requires you to in order to accelerate through your career. And the workforce is set up on the idea of you contribute, you can be here whenever we need you. You're going to not take any years off, certainly not years off work. You're going to work your way through the system. We will reward you for coming in every day and and contributing and not putting anything above the workplace. Mm. The minute that you start to tell us that you have to leave at 4 o'clock or 3 o'clock because you have to pick up your children, instantly the, the idea is they're not committed. They're not committed to this workplace. Therefore, they're not executive material. They're not the people we're going to think of when we want to promote somebody. And so we create this system where it becomes almost impossible for women to do it all and yet we still continue to say isn't she amazing she does it all what we should be saying is there is a problem here what (laughs) is she sacrificing exactly what has she sacrificed to do this and Mm. is it worth it and what can we do as a society to change Mm. our response to that so that because so many women are exhausted Mm. completely exhausted Mm. by trying to do it all Mm. And I think this is also the first generation where they are, try- yeah, do- doing it all, the working and the volunteer. And so many of the systems and the things that we have in place just do not fit the current model. Like even I see with the PNC and, you know, I often think, well, if it was all men on the PNC, what would they do? Would they run fundraisers and cake stalls? <laughs> I don't think so. So, you know, the the model is just we've got to catch up the societal models. But then yeah, you know, it's very challenging to do that because women don't want to speak up. They don't want to challenge the status quo. It's very hard to do that. And then you're seen as a troublemaker if you do. And not only by men, but by other women. It's like, no, 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 this is, you know, it's the whole tribal thing. This is what we do. This is how we operate in our tribe. So don't upset the apple cart because then you're just a troublemaker. And we're actually all quite happy doing it like this. You know? It's so challenging. It's so challenging for a woman who, a woman who is suppressing her own desires to see a woman who refuses to suppress her own desires. It triggers everything within her. She's yeah. like, get that woman away from me now because she will, because what it's forcing her to do is look at all the things that I've suppressed in myself mm-hmm. in order to maintain this status quo, which was never set up to serve me. Mm. And that is a really hard day, the day that you look at yourself and you realise I've been putting myself last. Mm. Because human beings aren't designed to put ourselves last. We're designed to care for ourselves and from that place of caring and valuing ourselves, then to extend that out to other human beings. We cannot, we literally need to look at that whole air in in the aeroplane, you know, put your own air mask on first analogy We need to operate like that as women and what we instead have been told to do is put everybody else's air, air, what are they called, air mask? You know what Um, I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Put everybody else's on mask. Yes, oxygen oxygen mask. 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 (laughs) And this is what we've been told, put everybody else's oxygen Mm. mask on first and if you haven't haven't died of a lack of oxygen, then put your own mask on. Mm. And that is not the way for healthy functioning society to continue to sustain itself it just isn't we can't have half the population falling flat in the airplane because they forgot to put their own mask on first because they haven't skilled up themselves or they just haven't valued themselves enough and this is not I'm not in any way blaming women for not valuing themselves I'm saying of course you don't Mm. your society has told you not to and mm. so it's out the only the only powerful response I have to that is to say, well, I must teach myself. Mm-hmm. I must teach myself to value myself first. And then by virtue of that, I bring back so much joy. I bring back so much pleasure into my life. I feel more liberated and free. And then 
I be, I personally become a better mother. Mm-hmm. I become a better wife. I, I become a better community member because I have given myself the space and time to look after my own needs. I've had the confidence to speak up about what they are and to say, I matter too. Mm-hmm. So what's your advice then on, the, you know, how to start to work on challenging some of these sort of status quos and, and you know, for a woman in a small community who might be like, well, actually, you know, you know, how do we go about addressing some of these challenges about the way things are done? And, and you know, what comes up for me is all the, you know, visibility blocks and making sure we don't hurt people's feelings and how do we do that in a nice way and all of that sort of stuff. But is it really about sort of being the change yourself and, you know, that whole be the change you want to see in the world and working, you know, you being the example for a start? Or are there other ways that you can approach these things? You know, I mean, and this goes to simple things. I would say, not simple, not simple, challenging things, but even like talking to your husband in the home about, you know, could you possibly do a few more of the domestic duties? I've had enough of doing everything. You know, like how do you approach these conversations as a woman that are, you know, really very hard in a lot of ways if you don't have the internal strength and the compassion and the self-compassion and all the practices in place where do you start I think I think a few things I think you have to do it in small steps I do not think that like jumping in the deep end really benefits anybody Mm -hmm. if you're in a in a relationship uh, with a man for example and you just start going right into the deep end of you're not doing anything da, 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 da. Mm. all that's going to happen is they're going to get defensive they're going to get defensive and they're going to shut down that's the normal male response defense shut down or defense get violent hopefully i mean of those two you prefer the defense shut down obviously um, yeah. but let's try not to have that at all and and how you move people from where they are to where you want to be is through slow steps, small steps and and doing it slowly. And first, the first thing that I always start with is myself. I always start with, well, let me look at myself. Let me get clear on what is it that I want? What really matters to me? What's really upsetting for me? And getting clear that I'm entitled to have an opinion, have a perspective and to speak up about how my things are going in my own home. They're the first things. Now, to do that, I might need to listen to podcasts like this. I might need to read some books. I need to, might need to watch TV programs where women are modelling that for me. Mm-hmm. So getting into that environment where I'm surrounded by people, whether in person or virtually, who for whom this is normal is wildly important because you go from thinking nobody else is speaking up about this to realizing actually loads of people are speaking up about this. It's just not happening in my home. So that's the first thing. And then considering your own environment, your own circumstances, your own dynamic in your relationship, I will often speak when I need to speak up about something not when I'm feeling upset about it. I will wait until I'm feeling really clear and not triggered by it, by which I mean, like, you know, when you're triggered by something, you just, it doesn't matter what somebody says, you're either going to get angry about it or it's just going to start to spiral into like a thousand examples of where they don't do anything. And, you know, and it, and it's not a productive conversation. So when it's something that's really important to me, I treat it in the same way as I might treat a business meeting. And I think about it. I think about what do I want to achieve from this? How do I want to communicate this in a way that it might be actually heard? And um, what, what will that look like? And then I'll start with something small. And I'll say, well, this is my experience. And this is, and I'm owning my own emotions and I'm owning my own uh, reaction to a situation. And I'm saying, this is my experience and this is what I want to change. Do you have some suggestions for how we might do that? Mm -hmm. So instead of coming in with, you're not doing this and you're not doing this and you're not doing this and you're not doing this, not that all of that is absolutely true, by the way. I'm not (laughs) denying that they're not doing anything. Yes. However, uh this is about discerning communication it's about being discerning in the way we communicate with another human being and then coming into partnership and assuming some level of equality in the conversation assuming some level of assuming that they're interested in 
you being happy, your happiness, just as much as you're interested in their happiness, mm-hmm. couching the conversation in that in that term in those terms. So that's that's in a domestic environment, and you might know that you want to get from uh, somebody who never does the washing to eventually they're going to take over all the washing, so you never have to do it again. But maybe the first step in that is <laughs> unload a week, learning where the yeah, exactly. Learning where the washing machine is, <laughs> creating some time for them to, you know, work out when that might be something. But it's also about conversations about if I'm doing this and you're doing that, why is the domestic stuff still with me? Mm. Why isn't it with both of us? Yeah. Are we genuinely a partnership? And if so, what does partnership look like to you? Because at the moment there's an in, there's there's an imbalance. Mm. in the way the partnership operates. I think that's a wildly important conversation. And and I don't, like, I have no opinion about anyone else's relationship and where that should land. Uh, But I think that every couple needs to have that conversation, particularly heterosexual couples, Mm. needs to have that conversation in order to find a place where both parties feel, Mm. okay, this is equitable for me. That's right. And there's no around there's no resentment exactly and the minute that that you sit in a situation where you're like well I'm doing everything it's just Mm. it's going to start to eat away at the at the relationship because the resentment will just start to fester Mm. but the other piece that I wanted to mention is if you're in a community setting you want to change something in your community I strongly recommend a collective voice over an individual voice Mm -hmm. and that is so this comes off a couple of things it comes off if we when we watch Me Too. Before the Me Too movement, we had women all the time speaking up as individuals saying, this is happening to me. The response, she would get sacked. She's a troublemaker, sack her. Mm. Then a woman would speak up again. She's causing a problem. Sideline her in this career in this or in this company. Then suddenly women spoke up en masse around the world like millions of women spoke up at the same time and what happened men started losing their jobs the perpetrators of sexual um harassment started losing their jobs and people started to take it seriously because that's what unfortunately at this point we need we need so many women's voices in order to make the point we saw that with the march the women's march recently in australia where it took thousands of women to march on Parliament House for the Prime Minister to take seriously some of the allegations around sexual assault. So, and then there was a study done and it was connected to um, the, well, I heard it through the Obama administration where even Obama, who was is out and out, has often, you know, said, this is what a feminist looks like, I'm a feminist, etc. He was finding in his own um, inner circle of advisors that what was going on was when women would make a contribution, bring forth an idea about something in to, to pursue, like a policy idea or whatever it is, uh, she would speak up and then everybody would go, yeah, and then the conversation would continue, conversation would continue, and then eventually a man would say the same point and then they'd all go, oh, that's a great idea. And mm-hmm. so what happened was one day a woman went to Obama and said, do you know this is happening? And he's like, what? No, hang on. And she went to all the women and she said, you know what we have to do? When I say something or you say something or you say something, the other the other women in the room all have to back the other woman. I don't care if you like it or not. You just got to back the woman for a little while to make the point. We need to make the point. Yeah. So what they then did is they went into the meeting and one woman would say, I've got this idea. And then another woman would go, that's such a good idea. I think we could do this with it and did it and back her up. And then a third woman would say, I think that's an amazing idea. We should do it. And what they discovered was it required three women speaking up in the meeting for the men to hear the women's perspective. Three women. It wasn't being, the one woman was not being heard. And that's not because the men are um, deliberately trying to exclude the women it's because they've been conditioned to listen to men's voices Mm -hmm. when you grow up and your news anchor is a man and your radio presenter is a man and the principal is a man and the you know prime minister is a man you become conditioned to men's voices and then you 
when men speak, they carry authority and gravitas. And so you listen, but we are not conditioned to hear women's voices in the same way. And so when you go into communities and you want to change a community, I recommend, strongly recommend the same collective approach. Get as many women as you can together and speak as one. Mm, I love that. That's such good advice. And, I, you know, I certainly can relate to some experiences that I've had myself trying, trying to be the lone ranger. It's like, yeah, it doesn't work. I mean, I mean that's, that's sort of that's significant for all things, isn't it? It's always better to work as a collective anyway. It tends to be to work as the group, you know, it has much more impact and it's, 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 it's a better option for a lot of reasons, I think. So, yeah, that's excellent advice. And thank you for the advice on the domestic situation too because I see a lot of women really struggling with that having these difficult conversations, well, what are perceived to be difficult conversations with their partners and, and yeah, just even just broaching this topic of, well, I'm doing all the domestic duties. Why is that so? Because actually I'm working quite a lot too. Another thing I see a lot, especially with women on farms, is the women doing the bookwork, but it doesn't get paid. You know, I mean, doing the accounts and the bookwork is a really significant part of a business, right? But that's just something a woman does on the side as an extra because, you know, we'll just get her to do that because she's got nothing else to do, so she'll do the books. It's still amazing. And the real work is what the guy's doing, right? Yes. It still blows my mind that, like, that still happens even in this day and age and it's not, you know, we just get the women to do that and it's not valued the same way and that's, like, a huge part of a business. You know, the women in Iceland had to eventually be... uh, going on strike I think they did it yearly annually where what they would do is they would leave the workforce at 2 30 whatever the equivalent time is because their wage gap was so extreme which there's wage gender wage gap in every country what they would do is they would work up until the point at which then the gender wage gap would kick in Ah, so they would say well you know we're only actually valued up until 245 or 255 so we're leaving and so all the women left Mm. and then the men were just left for those last few hours of the day when they were the only ones getting paid for those hours anyway the women weren't getting paid for those hours and this this kind of creative response creative collective response I think is what is going to be called for more and more of this so if you had all rural women suddenly not doing the books for (laughs) weeks or whatever it might be suddenly people the men would value it they'd be like oh my god this is important this is valuable this isn't just something you do on the side or you do for love this is actually a a critical part of our business Mm. And maybe we need to change the way we think about that. But sometimes, you know, in a domestic relationship, it's about sometimes what I would do with um, my husband and I have an extremely, I would say, equal relationship. In many ways, he does, he does, you know, the majority of the domestic, uh, takes a lot of the mental load, let's say, in our domestic environment. And still, he, he grew up you know, in the uh, 70s and 80s in a very sexist society. And so he's still got blinders and he's still got biases and so forth. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, we were talking about when the whole Me Too movement came up, he was getting really defensive for a while about mm. uh, not all men. This is like he was really upset yeah. by by all, all everything that was coming out. And he would be quite like, he would be quite reactive about it whenever I'd mention it. And so I sat with that for a while and I thought, okay, what am I going to, how are we going to move forward on this conversation? Because I'm not going to stop talking about this stuff. So we're going to, we need, we need to find a way. And so I ended up looking at lots of different ways rather than it just being, ah, like me getting really angry, even though I was angry, uh, I would like, suggest a particular movie when it was you know we're sitting down to watch Netflix that might have some kind of theme running through it of you know sexual harassment and then I then we might just have a conversation about it afterwards and it didn't have to be the the whole theme of the movie it might have just been a thread of it or I might send him an article from time to time which I thought he might be you know um, open to so it just did a couple of different things like that along the way and then you know if if it was an environment that um, we were 
uh, everybody was feeling good, the family was in a happy space, you know, everybody was, I might mention, you know, I, I just noticed this the other day that happened and I had that conversation in a way, women, every woman I think on the planet knows how to do this if she's been in a relationship with a man, <laughs> just subtly bringing something in. And so what I noticed over time is within a couple of years, it did. It certainly took a couple of years, he then completely lost that whole story of not all men. He realised, oh, that's not what they're saying. Mm. But it definitely took time and it took my patience and creative consideration about how to bring it forward and I think the same thing happens when we I'm a non-Indigenous white Australian and I notice sometimes when I'm doing work on anti-racism and breaking that down in myself there are times where I absolutely feel defensive and I'm like Mm. I feel you know this is I I don't I feel badly about the situation and I have to take some time to stop and and work through my emotional response to that and and open my heart and then see things from another person's perspective. And that's the process that we're all, all people who experience any level of privilege are being invited to do. It's not to expect that you would never get triggered by something that somebody says. Of course, you're going to get triggered by something that they say, but it's to then own that and then work out, okay, where do I go from here? And I think the more that you can do that in yourself around your own privileges, the more you become a model for the people in your life and they catch it. They really do. They really, we ended up in a situation just the other week where, you know, from this place where my husband was feeling quite defensive about me too. And then there was a piece of legislation recently introduced in the ACT around um, this awful practice of stealthing where, um, if, if children are listening, maybe this is just a moment to just um, uh, mute it, uh, where men will deliberately take a condom off in the middle of having sex with a woman and then continue with the sex act pretending like the condom's on. It's called stealthing. So, they, so they're taking it off, continuing wow. the sex act, either, you know, and then ejaculating inside the woman without her consent. So there's it's oh, such a big thing across the country. I know, either did I. But it's such a big thing across the country. Legislation is starting to be introduced wow. in different jurisdictions to make it Ill- explicitly illegal. Yeah. Anyway, I, I read this and my immediate thought was, of course, guys are doing that. Um, like, I didn't even, it just like was water off a dog's back at this point. I'm like, yeah, yeah, what what a not a surprise. Yeah. And my husband read my husband read it and he was, outraged he was just livid so angry that this was happening he was just like who's going to take care of the children if men do this like why can't they take responsibility for themselves and it had so gone the other way in our relationship where now he is the one raging against what was happening and I was the one sitting back going men (laughs) (laughs) so I mentioned that story to say change absolutely is possible I start with myself, I embody whatever it is, this new woman that I want to be, and I start the conversation with an with an idea that this is a conversation and the conversation may last for many years and that that's okay. That's a part of our growth as a partnership. Yeah, and I think that's really important and that, and that growth and change takes time because the tendency for me that was coming up there was like, well, we should be able to just say what we want and we should be able to just make them change and why don't they understand? Like, you know, that's what comes up, but it's like, no. We are changing layers and layers and centuries and generations of conditioning and a patriarchal society. It's going to take time. We can't just expect that this stuff's going to happen overnight. And if we really want long-lasting, meaningful change, then it's going to have to be a process that's done in a way like you described rather than, you know, trying to forcibly do it because it doesn't work. Like it just doesn't work. People just back more into their corners and we know that doesn't work. So I think that is some excellent really good advice there around how to approach this and to be prepared that it's it is going to take some time and I think going into it with that knowledge too that you're not going to change things overnight is sort of empowering in some ways because it's like okay well this is we know this is going to be a a longer journey than what we'd hope you know I think that's sort of encouraging and I think every woman has to know what their um no-go zone is like they we have to all know actually if you're crossing that boundary then I need to be prepared to 
to hold that line, mm. you know, and then deal with the consequences of that. I mean, I've been divorced for that very reason that I was just say, like, I, I know what my boundary is mm. and I'm willing to walk away. And I'm not, I'm not advocating that for everybody, but I'm saying that every person has to know, you know, the willingness to have the conversation is different from I'm now going to be a doormat for the next 20 years. That's not what I'm saying. Mm. I'm saying actually having the conversation, being being parties that are willing to come together and explore these ideas. So, I mean, patriarchy goes back thousands of years. There's, there, there's laws, some of the earliest laws that were ever written on tablets, about 2,500 BC, say if a woman speaks out of turn, she will be, her face will be smashed by a brick. <laughs> wow. And I was actually thinking, I was remembering um, Broken Open, Elizabeth Lesser, her book she wrote, and Brene Brown interviewed her, and she goes through all the stories through history that have talked about and conditioned women. Like she goes, I can't remember them exactly, but it was, yeah, and, you know, this is what all the stories that have been told about women and how they're all narrated is all about exactly like that, like a woman should not speak up or will bash her face in. I mean, and that's all threaded through all of us, isn't it? If you go into all the deep stuff about the generational, um, the stuff that you were ancestry and all of that, like that still lives within each of us, you know? It's intergenerational trauma of yeah. living in patriarchy or living in, in conditions of white supremacy and many other forms of oppression. The intergenerational trauma is immense. And we're now at this stage as uh, in our societies where we're willing to, we have developed a better understanding of trauma, mm-hmm. how it works, what it looks like, and now what to do about it. So we're in a very fortunate position to be able to create that change. I think the other thing is that um, the other the other avenue for conversation is for parents because I know that every father wants their daughters to have every opportunity they Mm. really do they just you know they love their daughters they want them to succeed and and so sometimes the conversation has to be focused on the child Mm. and what kind of environment do you want her to grow up in what kind of society do you want her to grow up in there are times when I'll say to my husband I want you to think about any any kind of behavior and whether you would want our daughter to think that that mm-hmm. uh, your behaviour is what she should expect from the men in her life. Mm. When you ask them that question and get them to think about that, that can be an immediate game changer because mm. they're suddenly like, oh, oh no, I wouldn't want my, I wouldn't want her boyfriend speaking to her like that. I wouldn't want a boyfriend treating her like that. Even little things like boundary violation, where parents will not really listen to their kids and start tickling them and the kids are going, please stop, please stop, or, you know, little things like that where the girl is saying stop, 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 and the parents or the whichever is is not listening, the message straight away is it doesn't matter if you say no, nobody listens to you anyway. Mm-hmm. And we all know how that plays out in teenage years and beyond with in terms of sexual relationships. So even little things like that, of and we had an example of that where my husband hadn't really thought about the thing of tickling and and you know physical boundary violation in that way and I said if she says stop the one thing you want her to know in her life is that when she says stop somebody respects her you need her to know that from the beginning so I don't care if you're wrestling I don't care how innocent you think it is because it is innocent the whole I'm not talking about anything nefarious at all I'm talking about really beautiful innocent wrestles kickles, all of that kind of stuff that we love to do as parents. But if if you do not then respect her, what she has to say about how her body's treated, that will have ramifications down the track. That's a really great conversation to have with mm. a man because it starts to get him thinking about a whole lot of other things that he may not have had the benefit of having the perspective on before. I think that's so powerful and to have that sort of, you know, it's so interesting, as you say, like all fathers want, they don't want to see their girls treated like it, like that, yet little do they know that actually the way they're treating their mother or their wife is the most important relationship to see as the example in their child's life. And so to have that kind of self-reflection and the accountability and taking responsibility, well, actually I'm creating, you know, the way that my daughter sees the world and I have the biggest impact 
you know, I think that is a really powerful conversation to have for sure. And it definitely yeah. a sort of in for a woman to approach the conversation too. If you're looking for, well, how can I approach this in a way that's going to get through to them or to make them see what I want to see, like this is a good way to do it. And I think, you know, so often what I try to think about is it's really, it comes back to choice, you know. I mean, there, there might be women out there who love doing all the domestic duties and that's great, but don't don't expect that that's, that's fine for everybody. You know, we have to be accepting and, and we've got to get more understanding and more awareness that this is, it's we've got to get to the level where we're discussing these things as a partnership and it's what's best for both parties, not just what's expected. And same in the community environment and community groups and workplaces and everything. We've got to be, you know... It's a, we've, we've still got a long way to go, that's for sure, but these conversations like this um, are so incredible for it, Sam. I think we'll have to do, like, a part two because I feel like I've got so many. I would love to do a part two at some point. <laughs> I will definitely have to get you back on because it's been so great chatting with you and I could talk about this stuff all day. I'm so passionate about just making life, I guess, easier and better and more fulfilling for women and being able to let them you know be more empowered and and live their best lives and all that kind of stuff and I think this is really such an important part of it so thank you so much for all the work that you do in the world and I think that the school of visibility you just closed it again is that right it opens how often is that open yeah, I would. Uh, we we open a few times a year. So I would, if you're interested in the work, I would just come to the schoolofvisibility.com. You can see what we've got there. We've got loads of free resources. We've got you know um, cheap, quite inexpensive resources, and then we've got full, the full out program, Women Speaking Up, which is what you're a part of, and that's really for women who are you know building something and really wanting to take that to the next level and and really get confident in who you are and using your voice and so forth but there's lots of different entry points uh for all women so the school of visibility.com is where it is but i wanted to say how brilliant it is because that you're doing this podcast because it's exactly that it's all these little conversations that make the difference and how extraordinary will it be when all the rural rock stars are just rocking every community in Australia and around the world that is just something that I cannot wait to see so thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much Sam thank you for your beautiful energy and thanks for joining me today I really appreciate it so much thank you